1: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Women's History via the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Davis, co-editor of the Journal of Women's
0: History, here to introduce this episode. Your host today is Professor Bala
1: Saho, Associate Professor of African History at the University of Oklahoma. He will be speaking today with Professor Naminata Jabate, Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Cornell University, and a scholar of sexuality, race, biopolitics, and post-colonial Africa. They will be discussing Professor Diabate's new book, Naked Agency, Genital Cursing and Biopolitics in Africa, published by Duke University Press in 2020.
0: Professor Saho, Professor Diabate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much, Professor Davis.
0: Um, Naminata, how are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much, Professor Saho. Wonderful.
0: Um, um, In addition to the introduction, I would like you to say a little bit more about yourself and your background and what you are doing right now.
1: I'm Naminata Diabate uh, from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. I hold a PhD in comparative literature. We have dual conf- concentration in African diaspora studies and women's and gender studies from the University of Texas at Austin. At Cornell, I'm associate professor of comparative literature and core faculty in feminist gender and sexuality studies. My research and teaching engages multiple sites, such as novels, of 20th and 21st centuries, online and social media materials, pictorial arts, film, journalism, and oral traditions from Francophone and Anglophone Africa, Black America, Afro-Hispanic, and the French Antilles. Uh, This is quite a (laughs) mouthful, And this is so, because as a comparatist, we are expected to have a linguistic expertise in multiple languages. And mine include uh, Malenque, which is my first language. And the others include French, of course, English, Nushi, which is my second language, Spanish and Latin. So, I mean, broadly speaking, my research and intellectual project take the trans-African context as my point of departure and uh, seeks to redefine how we understand specific forms of embodied agency uh, to reformulate questions of power. In exploring questions of pleasure... Which is part of my current project, and the impact of internet media on queer practices and sex strikes, which have until recently been left out of serious reflections. I hope to produce theoretical insights and methodological innovations to extend uh, the boundaries of my discipline, which is uh, that of uh, comparative literature. So as you just mentioned, uh, we're gonna be talking about my latest book. But before I get to that, let me say that I have begun to publish the inside of my research in non-academic venues including uh, PBS's uh, Academic Minute in the United States, uh, the podcast series in South Africa, and uh, newspapers and academic and uh, women's magazines in Côte d'Ivoire, and online news platforms in Nigeria. And uh, the second manuscript that I'm currently working on Uh, is about digital insurgencies and bodily domains.
0: Excellent. Um, Terrific. So, um, Naminata, as a follow-up, can you tell us a little bit of why you wrote this book?
1: This is such an always uh, an exciting question for me because this is uh, the origin story. And there are multiple multiple reasons behind this. The first uh, uh, reason is personal and existential, which eventually dovetailed into the intellectual one. The the first, I mean, the book uh, evolved out of frustration and hope. When I moved to the U.S. for graduate school, to my initial amazement, The stereotypical images of Black and African women's bodies that I encountered in my women's and gender studies courses were steeped in what I have come to call the pervasive pictures of negative sexualities. These are primarily images of female genital cutting, which most of us are familiar with, images of violation Here I'm referring to corrective rape, rape as weapon of war, and marital rape, and questions of reproduction, such as the unreasonable, unreasonable number of African women's children, and of course the question of pathology and uh, HIV rape AIDS. So these texts and our reading frameworks of course, in the name of social justice, uh, seem to be restaging the paradigms of victimization. So put, put differently, our problematics and lack of variety. It was in the constriction of range that restage what we were not comfortable with so i was not f- that impacted my existential outlook the problem was that the literature was not correct the fact that it did not depict anything else it didn't depict the ways in which women could resist defy inspire risk, negotiate, or that women were complicit, or much more. So, as we all know, from Gayatri Spivak or Anthony Giddens and others, mm-hmm. there are no structures outside of agency. So, we could expect that there were images in which women were participating in forms of resistance. So as you could imagine, that set of images impacted me because I grew up with women who had the power to threaten men with the sheer exposure of their bodies in anger. So I was just curious as to why a more complex Representational politics of women's lives were not available in those courses. So in a nutshell, I was in search of this fuller picture. So that was the the first point. So the second point was, you know, in African studies, when I was doing the research, it became clear that there was this idea of romanticizing the gesture of women stripping naked to for contestatory uh, reasons. So I also wanted to build up on that scholarship, and also to to I mean, to diverge from it. So those are the two main questions that undergirding undergirded the writing of this book. One,
0: wonderful. Um... As a
1: follow-up to that,
0: um, you know, I think also like I, I grew up also in the same sort of cultural or social environment, you know, um, and um, I think I'm very familiar with some of the things that you are saying. But as a follow-up, what is your view on ritual and ritual practices in Africa, and what exactly is biopolitics?
1: ha huh. That's a, that's a thought provoking question. Because I do not hold particular views on ritual practices in Africa, as I do not hold specific opinions about rituals everywhere else, everywhere elsewhere in the world. I understand a ritual to be a sequence of activities involving gestures worlds, actions, or objects performed in a specific place and according to a prescribed order. In that case, a wedding ceremony is a ritual, correct? Mm -hmm. (laughs) A graduating or a graduation ceremony is a ritual. If you you and I will agree.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So, okay. But I think I understand where you're coming from. In my book, genital cursing within a specific religious context, if defined so by the practitioners, qualifies as a ritual. So, as we all know, Africa is not a country, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: correct? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But a continent of 53, 54 countries, depending on when you're saying it, and more than a billion and a half population. So, as such, the ritual will be markedly, markedly different within one region not to speak of one country. So what I will offer here will be the perspectives of two anthropologists working from two different countries. One among the Igbos of Nigeria and one working on the Betty of Cameroon. So one Francophone Africa and one Anglophone Africa. So these are markedly different. So according to Miss Debastian, among the Igbo, in the Igbo context, the angry exhibition constitutes the last stage in genital cursing. Earlier stages Include the verbal suggestion, do you want to see where you came from? And the expressive movement of the woman untying the waistcloth in the ceremonious gesture. What I'm going to do later is to explain why this gesture matters. Uh, Jean Pierre Ambolo, who wrote in French, is from Cameroon, says of the Betty that here I'm taking the example of his son who would have been cursed by his mother. So to lift the curse, for the curse to be annulled, there is a ritual for that. And these are the steps for the annulment. It has the the ceremony has to be a public one. The cursed son will bring offerings. He will kneel, he will kneel down and move towards his mother in that position. So the mother will consider the son's plea for mercy, and then she will go away to cut a handful of different plants, which she will then chew which she would then chew and spit the juice of over her son. So that ritual will reintegrate her son into the community. So we see that this is a ritual. So, but typically, there are five principles that undergird the cursing rituals. Those are The potency of women's fertility, fear of senior women's sexuality. The third one will be prohibition against incest. And incest here has to be understood as male, I mean, targeted males looking at elderly women's exposed bodies. And witnesses should side with the women to ostracize the targeted males. Because if they do not do that, they will be guilty of incest. So those are, that, uh, that's the fourth principle. So the fifth principle is that the person who is just ostracized will be socially dead, and will eventually die of an incurable disease. So that's how we have to understand that ritual.
0: Um, excellent. Um, I, I like the way um, you sort of um, explain how this is communicated in different parts of the continent. But I also want you to, talk a little bit more about what makes nudity or nakedness effective, particularly whose nakedness matter in this sense.
1: Okay, so I think it has to, we have to take this from different perspectives. Whether we are looking at it from that of the women's targets, that of the onlookers or that of the women themselves. Because what I try to do in the text, and which other books on the subject didn't do, is to move beyond the dyadic framework. That most of us are familiar with, which is the women and the direct target. So, those two get to decide what makes nakedness effective and whose nakedness will matter. So, if the women, whether the young or old, say, My nakedness matters, the target will say, Your nakedness matters or not, we are locked. And that position of getting locked is not fruitful. It is not generative in terms of our scholarship. We cannot move further than that. Okay, so let me backtrack a second. Nakedness, at least in contestation, as a form of conflict management is as universal as it gets. There is nothing more universal than stripping naked to large grievances. Any culture where clothing is required in social relations, the removal of clothing always makes, I mean, removal of clothing in terms of dispute, always makes a case and it attracts attention. So if you think of that universality, there are only four books. I mean, three books, two books, actually, when I was writing mine that took on that, at least in the modern era. Books that were circulating internationally that were taking on that universal gesture. Two books. We have the, uh, the Australian scholar Ruth Barkins, Nudity A Cultural Anatomy, 2004, and uh, the British Philip Carr Gums, 2012, A Brief History of Nakedness, which was you know, for the uh, to geared toward a general readership. And both really focused, I mean, didn't even focus. They tangentially touched on disrobing. So I thought that you know there had to be a full book on defiant disrobing. And when my book was going into production, I learned that another book in Africa, in the African context was also in production. And that was anthropologist, uh, Laura Greo. And her book came out in 2019 and it was called, uh, and it's called, uh, it came out in 2019, An Intimate Rebuke. So, but what I, we found in most of those books The women and the target. What do we get here? That's not useful, I think, and I argue. On the continent, we have young women, we have elderly women. Those are the ones who typically define the nakedness as genital cursing. Other women, students, younger women, the ones who do not think of their bodies as housing potent forces the unleashing of which will attack male targets, don't think of their nakedness as powerful, as effective in the same way as that of the elderly. So what do we mean by effectiveness differs depending on the women. And if we think of effectiveness in terms of what he achieves, that is also different. Because the women mobilize their nakedness for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they just want to express other vulnerability. Sometimes they just want to bank on the cultural capital of sex and attract the attention of the news media. Sometimes... They just want to shame public officials. So effectiveness is something that we cannot measure, because the long-term effects are not tangible, and that's the argument that my book tries to make. We cannot measure these things, and I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna elaborate on this with other questions. Right. Because I don't want to monopolize this conversation. Excellent.
0: <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. We we're doing great. Um, but but still, I want us to talk a little bit more about this, um, in the sense that um, or oh, because in the Munding culture, for example, um, where where we all come from, um, we know that exposed exposed bodies are not to be respected or valued because of this belief that what belongs to everybody belongs to no one. Um, so I want you to say something on how you reconcile this whole genital causing to, to these kinds of
1: beliefs. It's uh, yes, you and I, we share the Monday culture. You know, you're from, you know, the Gambia, correct? And I'm from the Ivory Coast and... Uh, yeah and as you know it's a, it's a never like you know as any other culture it's complex and ever evolving and uh you know of course we always need to historicize it and uh because it changes from decade to get decade and from century to century you know it depends on the locality and uh yeah uh You know, why don't I uh, briefly mention uh, the epic of Sunjata and its many variants as a way of responding to this question. One of the variants of the epic of Sunjata, which was Uh, collected... Can can you you uh maybe
0: say something? Who is Sunjata? I mean...
1: Uh, Sunjata uh, is uh, one of the founding fathers of, is this figure who helped uh, the Monday Empire to reach its peak in the 14th century. And the Monday Empire was one of the most brilliant, successful, empires in the world, especially in Africa in the 14th century. And it has been celebrated in the epic, the most well-known being Gibralt-Tamsil Nyan's uh, written version. But also there are thousands of the epic, I mean, written and sung by the jellies that most of us are familiar with. And the epic of Sunjata, there is a variant which narrates the fight between Sumaru Kante, which is Sunjata's nemesis, and Sunjata. And Sumaru Kante's mother is supposed to have cursed him by opening up her wrapper to him and cursing him. So... That means that something called genital cursing exists among the malenke. So when we say what belongs to one person belongs to everyone exists in specific circumstances. So if we know that Monday culture has been influenced by Islam because we know that Mansa Musa made a pilgrimage to Mecca, and historians have made, you know, arguments that that was the impetus behind European colonization of Africa. That's another debate. How can this culture, which was Islamized, allowed nakedness in public? So that's my, you know, that would be my answer to this. It is valued, it is respected, and it's actually not allowed. So it is not. Islam will not recognize it. Islam will not recognize it because it will be considered as a fetishistic practice. Is that making sense? Islam will not recognize it as it will it will reject it. Islamic practices as I mean as practice in our cultures as a fetishistic practice. Let me take an example from the book. In the Gambia, uh, women were protesting against, that was in 2001. Yes, I guess. Yes, they performed a ritual, a genital crossing ritual and a journalist, like okay, in broad daylight, they were naked, really, I mean, stark naked and were performing their rituals. And a journalist tried to approach them and they rebuffed him saying, you too young to even be witnessing this. So he went ahead and wrote about the performance. And two days later, when news of the performance, Became popular, you have both. I mean, religious. I mean, you have religious leaders from the Catholic Church and from uh, mm-hmm. from uh, from the mosque, no. both scathingly criticizing the women and their practices as fetishistic. So that is the uh, that's. Uh, I mean, this is a great question, actually. All
0: right. Very good. Um, uh, maybe we can come back to this this question because I think it's, as you said, it's very important. Um, but my other... Um, what I also like about is, uh, you know, I want us to return back to this whole question of our uh, naked agency. And if you can synthesize th- this whole concept one more time with regards to contemporary political social and economic climate in africa especially the struggle of african women so what is the connection between naked bodies and resistance or is it is it an act of hopelessness or of power
1: mm-hmm. okay thank you that is a that's a question that deserves you know clarifying what i called the romanticizing framework that is a framework that i flagged earlier on that framework typically upholds the women who strip naked on the continent as perpetually powerful when they strip naked their understanding of power is that once the women strip naked they're powerful And that's the end of the story. Independently of how the women feel or feel after their performance. So power here, it is understood to reside in the women's bodies. So let me backtrack here a second. In genital cursing, women's bodies are supposed to house Mystical forces. And it's by stripping naked, is by exposing those their bodies, women are supposed to be unleashing those forces. And those forces will befall the women's targets. And the resultant effect is that the male targets will catch all kinds of diseases including infertility, uh, all kinds of diseases that are really incurable. And then subsequently death, social and literal death. So that is supposed to be a form of power. But what what if you live in a society whereby somebody instead of being shamed and being ostracized fights back, and kills one of the women. Because that's what happens in some of the texts that I closely read and also in real life. What do we make of the women's power? Because then we have to take into account the women's, the counterattack of the women's power. So that means that power has to be understood not just as something perpetual, But as temporary, power has to be understood in terms of back and forth. You cannot hold power indefinitely. Power has to be understood in terms of temporality. And Foucault is not the only one who has reformulated power in terms of temporality, but he has articulated it in the most compelling way. Power actually is in tandem with forms of resistance. Resistance predates power and vice versa. They're co-constitutive. And we have to understand genital cursing and defiant disrobing because I disambiguate these two. Not all forms of naked protests on the continent qualify as genital cursing. And not all form, all defiant disrobings on the continent qualify as genital, I mean, as genital cursing. So we have to be specific. Unless the women come and say, "This is genital cursing, it is not. So that's why I use the term naked agency. That's much more neutral instead of, I mean, imposing on the practice whether it's genital cursing because I don't know unless I hear from the women themselves. So since naked agency brings together two terms, that would typically be understood as anti. Antithetical, antithetical, uh, uh, oppositional. I am trying to make sense of the contradiction that come together, like a power as temporary, as fleeting. The women are powerful in one specific moment, not at all time and in all places. Power does not reside in the body. Power reside in the traffic. As, as soon as the target responds, the target's response shapes the women's response and vice versa. Traffic, I mean power is a traffic mm-hmm. of agencies. Sure. Very good. Um, um, so as a
0: as a historian though. I think I have to ask this question, um, where is this form of protest? Um, Where is it from? Or what is the history of this form of protest in Africa?
1: Uh, That is the question for which I did not find uh, data. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's a human practice. Uh, In the book I mentioned. From ancient, from the ancient world to um, China, from the Aztecs to, you know, Africa, I just mentioned, uh, the Mali Empire during the medieval period. You know, I teach a class on nakedness and Africa only occupies a, a, a week or two. So I was not able to identify a specific historical moment where we can date this is when it started. But uh, in the book, if we were to follow historical documents, it will be in 1922 uh, in Kenya during what is called the Harry Tuku Trial. That's when we can date it. If we were to look for historical documents,
0: right? Mm-hmm. That's interesting, though, uh, because I maybe I would want to think that, um, you know, as 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 you said before, you know, even in the fourteenth or thirteenth centuries, this this protest would would have been there already, right? As, if you have given an example from the from the Mali Empire, mm-hmm. right? But, um, but my other sort of point is uh, in, um, in, in scene, the scene three of the book, Africanizing Nakedness, there you write about the attempt by public officials to inflate the customary power effects of mature women's angry, self disrobing for financial, political interests. So I want you to elaborate on that a little bit more. Maybe for, okay. For our listeners.
1: Okay. You know, that is... uh, That's when we talk about the question of naked agency because we don't think about these aspects. We think about power residing with women. We don't think about the instrumentalizing that public officials make with women's own participation. The Ajanu and other female corporations are prime examples of these forms of co-optation. For example, during the struggles for independence in the Ivory Coast, the 19, I mean, the height of those struggles, the 1940s to the 1950s. The Ajano, which is a secret society among the Baulio di Ivory was primarily politicized because the political elite was spearheaded by Ufwed Bwanyi. Other leaders were, were from other ethnic groups. But the leadership was held by Ufebwanyi and other of his, you know, some of his close allies. So the women, the Baulay, they were central in those political maneuvers, and they will perform the ajanu, and they were sometimes arrested by colonial officials. And sometimes when the men will be arrested, the women will go. In front of the, the castle, the prisons, and perform the ajanu, or sometimes those performances will be the sacred versions, and they will perform so that the powers of, I mean, the forces of the performances will aid to release their husbands. So, several books will celebrate these women's participation both mystical and material in the birth of the nation so fast forward the Africans achieves political independence you have factional politicization the baoule which is typically which are primarily in the one in political party will still instrumental instrumental the Ajanu against other political parties, and that is totally fine. But when it comes to empowering women in the Ivory Coast, that doesn't get traction. Let me take one example. In 2012, there were to be a marriage equality bill, which were to empower I mean empower women in the household. And that bill did not pass. So how can we celebrating women's participation in the nation the, during political uh, struggles, post-electoral civil war, the Ajanu and other female corporations, and the uh, I mean uh, female genital cursing and purification? That's all fine. But when it comes to empowering African, I mean, Ivorian women, that doesn't happen. So that's what these, those two paragraphs, I mean, those two uh, chapters in the book are about. So they inflate, you know, they really inflate the, the national, the African aspect of, oh, no, these African women, they're really powerful. The the rituals are powerful. They really Africanize these, you know, rituals. But that's the end of it. After that, we do not want to empower Ivorian women when it comes to modern practices such as the marriage equality bill.
0: Oh, very good. So, so it's, um, for for the for our listeners. You know, maybe you can explain what a Aj- really is, or who is who are the Baule, or you also mentioned um, is it Bagbo. I mean, just just in one yeah, just in maybe thirty seconds for our listeners.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the Gbagbo, I mean, uh, the Baulé is a ethnic group located in in uh, central uh, east of the Ivory Coast, and Gbagbo uh, was the was one of the uh, previous uh, presidents of the Ivory Coast, and is from the western part of the Ivory Coast. He's a Bete, oh. Uh, and uh, and the Ajanu is is a secret society from the Ba'wule ethnic group. Oh, very, good.
0: Mm-hmm. very good. Very good. So how so how would the, the Ajanu, um, or is it, um? can you discuss Ajanu a little bit more and the centrality of motherhood or the contribution of elderly women's bodies as the source of mystical power? Mm-hmm. Can you maybe spend like a minute or so describing this?
1: Yes. You know, uh, Diadjanu shares many similarities with uh, what I said about the beauty of Cameroon and other ethnic groups. For example, the mothers are supposed to be uh, the seat of society. So this, the seat and the guarantee of the survival of the society's survival. So the ajanu is the name of the secret society and also the name of the ritual. So if a calamity is to befall the, the tribe, the nation, the women will perform the purifying ritual, but the purification is preceded by the cursing because the calamity is supposed to be the coming of maleficent forces. So if you curse away those forces, that means that you purifying the land. Right. So they will perform two uh, rituals, one is public and the, the other one is private. The private one is where, according to ethnographers and anthropologists, they were stripped naked and then uh, pray and pray to the powers housed within their bodies and uh, the deities which are in connection with the land. And have the deities purify the land. So, whether I mean recently, last uh, last uh, April, in the Ivory Coast, uh, a village chief asked the women when COVID struck. The village chief asked the women to perform the Ajanu. and uh, the women they were wearing the face masks, and they performed the pri- I mean the public version of the Ajanu and then later on at night they performed the private part i mean the secret sick i mean the secret part and somebody who knows that i work on this uh, sent me the the news of it so so covid was supposed to be i mean it was understood to be uh, a calamity
0: Wow, oh, very good <laughs> i mean that's really an interesting though um
1: but in um while we were denying COVID here in the United States and refusing to wear masks, so you see that the, 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 they were synthesizing the modern wearing the mask. They were not denying that wearing masks were essential to keep keeping the, the virus at bay, <laughs> to warding it off, but they were also you know, uh, uh, deploying their own spiritual belief system to keeping the virus at bay. So, what a brilliant way of bringing the both worlds together!
0: <laughs> uh, fantastic. Um.
1: In in the in scene
0: five of the book, you discuss the potency of shame and the dysfunctioning of social relations because nakedness in itself is shame, right? So, how should we understand the dynamic relationships between nudity and and purifying rituals. Are there some specific examples around the continent, beyond, um, beyond the Gambia?
1: Yes. Uh, in most of those disrobing events, shame is central because the bystanders, such as you or me, whether we accessing these images of this event through social media platforms or newspapers, we are shamed by seeing our own nakedness in somebody else's nakedness. So that's how the affect of shame is distributed. It is the potency of shame emerges from the idea that we are better than this. Like, I as a human being see my own nakedness in somebody else's nakedness. I see my own vulnerability, my own helplessness in somebody else's helplessness. So that's why... As adults, it's very difficult for some of us to look at a naked person. It's very difficult. And sometimes based on our cultural and social standing, we can't even look at a male or a female. That's another question. In here in the United States, Shame seems to have a different valuation. But in some African societies, given the tie, th- I mean the close ties within those societies, because everybody knows everybody, because our identities are so tightly woven shame becomes the way to structure our social relations. So there is very little room to move beyond shame. Whereas in society where anonymity is possible, shame does not carry the same potency. It's in that sense that genital cursing and genital purification is more effective in close-knit communities. But it doesn't necessarily work in big cities because of the, the anonymity and the agency that anonymity bestows on people. So that's why in cities, most women do not bank on genital cursing because it will not work. They're they're mobilizing the nakedness for other purposes. Even the shame that you and I may feel as bystanders is really transitory because we're not linked to these women. But if we were living in the same village, we will, be, we will be beholden to these women. And, you know, in the book, uh, I have data from 23 different African countries. So that means that we have specific examples around the continent, except from uh, North Africa. And uh, the data that I have cover uh, about 10 decades so from from Mali to the Gambia, from South Africa to uh, uh Swaziland, from Togo to Nigeria, Liberia, I mean you name it. you know we have fifty four countries. Uh, we don't have North Africa. I mean, most African countries have registered events with nakedness. So we really have lots of countries, at least to 53 uh, countries, and I I'm, I'm dealing with I mean hundreds, no not hundreds, dozens of events.
0: Oh, very good. Um very good examples. Um I want us to go back again to this uh use um to this religious aspect of of um Naked protest because I think it's really important, particularly in uh, particularly uh, these days. so bearing in mind that the religious sentiments from both Muslims and Christians, how should the populations view these acts of nudity for the for the foreseeable future? um in other words, does the backlash from religious leaders diminish the efficacy of these women's rituals?
1: Yeah, you will think that. It will, but I, I don't think it is enough uh, of a deterrence because, I mean, of course, if it was enough, you will not see the kinds of music and artists and dance moves that we see on, on, for example, that you see in the Ivory Coast. And uh, although in the Ivory Coast you probably have 50% uh Muslims, and 50% Christian, So, no, it's not enough of a deterrence. And, uh, you know, I don't know about the Gambia uh, that specifically, but there is enough uh, religious heterodoxy. Lots of people practice Christianity and uh, Islam, but also hold on to lots of indigenous religious practices. So, and... Uh, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon but we also have to acknowledge the, you know the secular uh na- the secular state because after all most of those states in Africa are supposedly secular and those religious leaders are not state leaders they're just religious leaders so they have authority over their followers They're not representatives of the state. So we have to make those differentiations. They can have authority over the congregations. And uh, you probably know how many uh, congregants they have. But outside of those congregants, and and, and, you know, the question is, depending, depending on the level of vulnerability that you're experiencing on a daily basis, and it's in that way that the question of negative biopolitics is very interesting in the book. You can go to, to the mosque every day or to, to the church. And then your basic human rights are being violated in the most scathing way. And all that you have left to have your voice heard, is your body. In that sense, what does it mean? To you I mean if you see uh let's say for example in South Africa during fees must fall students were on campus they were protesting and then there uh, were there were rubber, ra- I mean rubber bullets being sh- shot and the female students were just so flabbergasted they felt that le- I mean soon there will be real I mean real bullets so they just started stripping naked. At that specific moment, should we assume that they're listening to the rabbi or to the pastors or to the uh, imams? No. At that moment, it's a matter of survival. So these have contextual. Sometimes these are right on the moment decision. That's what my research has demonstrated. Sometimes they have been planned and sometimes they're just right, you know, on the moment just out of sheer vulnerability you don't have any other thing or in south africa when these women you know from say, soweto were seeing the the shacks being destroyed by bulldozers and they do not have anywhere else to leave for that night all they could think of was just to strip naked that's all they could think of in that specific moment well, so
0: very good um but um, but in that sense, though, what do you say to the idea that women do not exclusively control the power, but given to them by their adversaries, that, that's the men? You know, what,
1: what do you say to that? Like I said, power is a traffic between the women and their adversaries. And here I am moving beyond the women and their adversary to include all of us. Let's take, for example, uh, the women in Soweto, and that is in chapter two or three of the of the book. When they stripped naked, one, the bull—I mean, the shack—still got bulldozed, and their nakedness still got recorded, and there was, and it was blanketed. Most international news, television news broadcast images of the nakedness. Five years later, academics went and interviewed them. You know what they said? That we regretted stripping naked because one, we were not successful, two, men in our neighborhood scolded us. Some said, my husband came and said, what were you thinking? And some said, my nakedness is forever out there in the world. And it's really out there in the world. There is no way they can take this back. Until today, we have access to this. So the idea of naked agency, what I call naked is open agency. That's woman's naked agency is open And it goes on forever. You have access to her nakedness. I have access to this. And it's out there. She was powerful in that specific moment when she stripped naked. Nothing could hold her back. But her nakedness is still ongoing. But every time somebody looks at her nakedness from an exotic perspective and is laughing at it, She loses her nakedness every time somebody does it. Somebody uses it for purposes other than social justice. She loses her nakedness. I mean, she loses her agency. She loses her power in that specific moment. And that's what I call naked, open agency. Because any time that her images of her body travels over time and, and over different platforms... That is the idea of naked agencies, open, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Um, finally, um, I don't want to think, um I think we have taken too much of your time today, but, but finally, what do you think will be the implication of your work on African women's struggle for emancipation from patriarchy and other forms of social and political oppression?
1: Oh, my goal is for us scholars to be honest in our scholarship and not be <coughs> mm-hmm. and not and not rob these women from the truth of their performances. Because I think we are doing violence. For example, to these women in Soweto, by not listening to them, by celebrating them as powerful that day and forever, we are not listening to these women. So for me, they deserve that we be nuanced in our analysis because we are sitting in our ivory towers, writing these papers, celebrating African women as powerful, you know, they're stripped naked, they're powerful. I don't think we are being honest. Our scholarship needs to be nuanced. Our scholarship needs to be in tune to what they're really thinking as much as we can based on the data that we have access to. So that's one part of it. If we don't do that, We are just responding to our own fantasies. We are just responding to the West. We are falling into what we call the writing back logic. The West has subjugated and brutalized images of African women, so we're going to write back. By writing back, we fall into the trap. And we forget the reality on the ground. So that's, you know, so I I mean, truly, I think this book is speaking to the scholarly world. Now, how would that trickle down to patriarchy on the ground? I think that's what I'm working on. Seriously, I'm still working on that aspect. But you know, uh, let me tell you something. Last uh, last week, I was invited by uh, this me. I was invited by the Institute, the U.S. Institute for Peace, and they were talking about violence and how women participate in violence in the community, armed violence in the community, and. My point was how we identify peace, how we define peace. Because when women strip naked, and some of the part I mean, our, I mean chapters in my book talk about that, we look at the forms of dispor robbing as peaceful. But that's a huge mistake. And Barack Obama, when he was president, said it, you know, peaceful protest. Hillary Clinton, when she was president, said it in response to these events on the continent. But that was a misreading of these events. These women were saying, this is the most brutal. This is our deadliest weapon. How can we move beyond that and say that this is peaceful? these are peaceful protests? So we need to redefine what we mean by peace. So that was my contribution and they were trying to come up with policies. So, you know.
0: Excellent. Um, very good. Um, do you have any final thoughts or, or, or maybe even questions?
1: Um. I mean, this just has been a, an, an honor. It's a privilege to be contributing to this uh, podcast series because it reaches a different audience. I have been following the the series, and uh, I really encourage all of us to to be honest in our scholarship and to be granular, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you.